Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Julio Martinez, CEO and co-founder of Abacom, an FP&A platform that's raised $40 million in funding. Julio, thanks for chatting with me today. Brad, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. I'm super excited about our conversation. So I was checking out your LinkedIn prior to the interview, and one thing really caught my eye, and it was a sabbatical that you took in India. I think it was in 2006. So I'd love to start there as a starting point for the interview. Tell us what was going on then. Back in the day, I was already in finance and doing corporate finance. And, you know, that was 2006 was the year when Mohammed Yunus won the Nobel Prize for microfinance, right? All his amazing work in Grameen Bank in Bangladesh. And then microfinance as a discipline was flourishing all over India and Nepal and, you know, many, many places in Asia, really, as well as in Latin. So I decided to, you know, out of that excitement, to take a sabbatical and go to India where I had some connections actually and, and dive into microfinance. So I was collaborating with two microfinance institutions in the West area of Maharashtra. So based on Mumbai and traveling around, around the place, that of course gave me the great opportunity to also dive into a new culture and learn many more things. So I think I took lessons back in the day where I was, you know, probably younger and, and it was extremely nourishing and it really shaped how I think, how I approach life and probably how I make decisions today. And was that hard to take a sabbatical like that somewhat early in your career? So it was fairly easy to be frank, Brett. So I had no questions. I knew, you know, I could make my way into whatever I wanted to do next, uh, being it finance, as I did later on, more traditional finance or, or technology, so, or potentially working international finance institutions like the World Bank, and I did a stint there as well, you know, to continue the more development type of focus work, but not difficult at all. Where did this passion for corporate finance come from? When you were a 10-year-old kid, were you, you know, running finances for your dad's business? Like, where did that passion come from? I think I learned it uh, during the way, if I have to be honest, when I was a 10-year-old, I was not dreaming to be you know, a fully-fledged finance guy. I think in my early days, finance was a very appealing career path, like consulting, right? So in finance, I was more getting towards investment banking. So back in the day, investment banking and consulting were equivalents in terms of, you know, highly driven people. They want to learn very fast, grow very fast, be exposed to, you know, circumstances that probably bring you a little bit to the edge in terms of pressure and working hours and, you know, need to deliver and grow over time very fast. So I decided to start there and see how how that was going to go. Let's also chat a little bit about, I hopefully don't get this too wrong, Banco Sabadell. So you were there most recently before you started the company. What was your time like there and what were you focused on? There I was uh, driving basically an innovation initiative that was called InnoSales and that was essentially a venture builder and an investment fund for strategic purposes. So I was in charge there to you know, run the operations and, and fundamentally we launched four fintech products to market and many others that, that didn't work. And we also conducted venture capital investments across the UK, Israel, other places in Europe, and actually the US as well. 
Let's talk about founding the company. So it looks like it was founded in April 2020. If I remember right, April 2020, there was some crazy stuff happening in the world. That was right in the early days of COVID. What was that time like to start a company for you? Hey, it was fantastic. So I think we didn't know back then, but you know, it comes to this point in, play, uh, in time where you are really preparing for that moment. You're really preparing to jump. And then all of a sudden, COVID hit us. And you know, if you remember back then, now we know it's, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, we know everything finished relatively okay. But back in the day, the world was melting. So I remember, you know, BCs running headless, uh, trying to help for portfolio companies. I remember nobody was fundraising, uh, fighting, and actually people leaving their jobs in the middle of uh, so much uncertainty was also very difficult. And probably that lasted three months, right? Probably not more than that. But I remember literally the first week of lockdown where, you know, the governments were placing everybody home. You know, I'm having that conversation with my wife. Yeah, we, you know, great idea. We're going ahead anyway, right? So, you know, <laughs> we launched in this business. So definitely it required a lot of commitment, a lot of conviction, a lot of discipline, a lot of willingness to get exposed to this challenge and a lot of clarity as to what to build and certainty that things were going to play out well, regardless of the environment. But we knew the pain is very real. We knew we had an unfair advantage to solve it. So it was full determination to go and do it. And obviously, you know, it's never up to the right, but we couldn't be more convinced. So we went ahead anyway. And yeah, the beginning was not easy, right? So you're supposed to be fundraising your pre seed or seed round, and nobody's really funding. You are supposed to get your early employees in motion. And probably it's, you know, they, they have a job, right? That probably pays them very well. So why? Why would they join a couple of guys with a PowerPoint and, you know, whatever? So definitely uphill uh, sprint, but the rest is history. I think that made us stronger. And here we are now. And just for some context here, when it comes to the problem that you're solving, how do you define and describe that problem? We see finance teams and revenue operations teams uh, spending a lot of time, actually 60, 70, 80% in some cases of their time in manual tasks, cleaning data and scrambling through data and fighting with the spreadsheets instead of spending that quality time in doing analysis and providing real-time visibility to all the stakeholders in the company. So basically doing what they are supposed to be doing, which is delivering insights and actually driving performance, driving accountability in the business, providing different stakeholders like the CEO, the board, or BP marketing, BP sales, like different people in the company with those insights and that challenge that they need to make better decisions in real time. So we are moving finance teams from this back office function to a strategic function that really delivers more value into the company. And why is this problem so hard to solve? When you describe it, that does seem obviously like a major pain point. People are you know, doing all this manual work. I'm sure you're not the first to realize this problem exists. So why hasn't anyone else solved it yet? So the category exists for a long time. So in that sense, we are not creating a new category, but redefining and reshaping an existing category. That category has existed. The FPA category, financial planning and analysis, exists in Hyperion in the 80s, right? So doing FPA for enterprises is pretty old, actually. That's a very competitive market, right? So you have a lot of solutions and players up there. You know, very well known is Anaplan, but you have, of course, OneStream, Board International, you know, many others. What I think is very unique about us is that we focus 
on the meat market. And that basically means we provide enterprise grade flexibility and functionality with some adaptations and peculiarities for the meat market, where, you know, given the increasing volumes of data, given the pressures the finance teams are having, they are in the need to upgrade their game so that they can fulfill their mission, so that finance teams can become this driving force and multiplying force in the company. Then to your question, so this is a bit of context about the category we play. Uh, so it's been tried. The results we see in the market have been subpar. So I always challenge everybody to you know find really happy customers in legacy solutions. And to be honest, it's very difficult to find. And to be frank, it's a complex problem to solve. So it's not that we are very smart and, and these guys were not, but we are now in a point in time where technology has really enabled us to do this better and where a lot of lessons have been learned. When it comes to the complexity that we solve for, I think that first of all, tackling the data problem is very difficult, right? So these companies in the mid-market are sophisticated. Usually they have a good tech stack in terms of ERP, CRM, data warehouse, BI solution, HRAS, you know, the hiring solution as well, ATS. So there is a lot of data with increasing volumes of data scattered in many places across the company. And then finance teams and these ops teams are left with, you know, and now I need to make sense of all that. And it's very complex, right? So this is a sticking point for all these teams and the driver of a lot of manuality, a lot of manual tasks. The other problem that the product faces in this category is solving multidimensional modeling at performance. That means using different variables and dimensions at the same time. And that essentially means when you have different countries, different geographies, different departments, different product lines, different. So doing modeling with all that combined at performance, at speed, with a lot of volumes of data, like that's a software problem that is difficult to solve. From day one, did you know mid-market was going to be the market that you try to play in? Or did you discover that as you brought this to market? No, we knew from the beginning, right? I think that both my co-founder George and I have been in finance for many years. We both then moved into technology. He was CFO and COO in amazing companies, unicorn companies, venture back companies, super fast growing, like, you know, super exposed to tech. And I was also, as I said, building product and I'm very exposed to tech as well. So with all this capitalization, we knew very well, probably the space. Needless to say that with, hey, three children each, you know, we did a lot of work before jumping into the swimming pool. And I personally talked to over 100 BP finances or CFOs, went very deep into the problem space, interviews, scripted, recorded, and you know, across different company sizes, different industries. So, you know, did what I felt I had to do despite all the years I had spent in finance. And I think it's fair to say that I know the space very well, right? So we are building finance for finance people. And yeah, so we understood that the mid-market was the key opportunity for us. So down market, we don't believe there is enough intensity in the pain. So probably with Excel and Google Sheets, hey, you, you can get a lot done, really. And then up market, I'm sure there is opportunity. So I think you can disrupt enterprise players. So it's fair to say that. But for us, what makes more sense is going after the mid-market, which is more greenfield, you know, as a market. From those 100 interviews that you did, can you give us an idea of the types of questions you were asking? Those would be the classic customer development questions that are by the book, right? So if you read uh, 
Four Steps to, to the Epiphany or the Startup Owner Manual or some of those amazing books. You know, I'm very rigorous about going by the book and trying to, you know, doing customer research as it's supposed to be done or as, you know, people that know more than I do <laughs> have done it successfully in the past. So types of questions are, are very classic, but always open-ended, you know, and always imposing some constraints. For instance, I personally like a lot the exercise with the coins, for instance. So if you have to say, hey, what do you want to solve first? Imagine this data problem, this modeling problem, this reporting problem, or this collaboration problem. And yeah, any customer will want it all, right? But if you say, hey, but now your constraint is that you only have, you know, 10 points, how do you allocate that? And you can only pick two, for instance. So you start imposing constraints so that they really prioritize for you what makes more sense for you to then get inspired and potentially build into the product. One thing I've heard from a lot of VCs is they always want companies to go enterprise. There seems to be a narrative, and, and maybe that's changing a little bit, but all the money's in enterprise and you're know, playing in SMB and mid-market, there's just not enough money there for VCs to really get excited. Is that something that you've seen as well? Not really. So I think for the mid-market, at least in our category, has been very excited to people. It's a very hot space. So I think many, many fans have realized that the TAM is huge, right? And they see amazing potential like the HRIS did in the past or, you know, some others. So anyway, so I think they see adjacent categories and market size was never a problem. I think that some VCs that were more exposed to maybe success cases in enterprise ask, well, you know, do you want to move to the enterprise? Do you want to do that? But I think if, if you offer the right answers, basically, or why you want to stick to the mid-market for some time, I think they get it, right? So the truth is that you can build at least 100 million ARR business in the mid-market, right? Only in the mid-market. And if after doing that, we feel like we need to go to the enterprise in, I don't know how many years, fantastic, you know, we might go there. But for the time being, that's only an intellectual debate. We have a lot of stuff to build and to deliver in the mid-market. So, you know, we don't want to lose focus. We get it. I think a lot of successful companies build an amazing franchise in the mid-market. Think of Ramp, for instance, here in New York, where I'm based. Hey, these guys were mid-market, actually, SMBs for a long time, right? And now, after a lot of tremendous success, they are, you know, they call Shopify as a customer or some other bigger players. Great. Good. But they did what they had to do at the beginning to deliver this amazing growth and get established in a segment. Let's talk marketing. So when it comes to your marketing philosophy, how would you describe it? It's core, right? It's the core of our strategy to build pipeline. I think big believers in our brand proposition and how we make every interaction with the company be consistent and be flashy. So we take care of that with measure. I think that in early stage, you don't want to be caught up in a lot of brand debates. I think you, you have to be very pragmatic. It needs to make sense. It needs to be very fast. And you don't need to be very worried about changing it all the time. But anchoring into an umbrella has worked for us. And then from a marketing perspective, a lot of focus on execution. I think we've learned that, you know, marketing is all about, you know, getting things done at an amazing speed. And it's the core of what we do in go to market. 
This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. I see a lot of badges from G2. What role has G2 played in your growth and your success? Well, that's organic. So, and, and obviously I love them. <laughs> that's uh, you know, fantastic customers that are very happy with the product because we build a, lo- a lot of superiority there and you know they deliver those patches. I think, to be honest, we started to be intentional about G2 very late and realized, well, you know, this is a great source for leads. So now we are understanding or the team has really understood, you know, the untapped potential that G2 had because you know, obviously the leads there have a very high intent. So now now it's working. To be frank, I don't know what's the split, but I know it's a successful channel because you know our G2 reviews are you know very, very strong. What do you do to get customers to leave those reviews? I've worked with a lot of companies and that's always the struggle is getting companies to, or getting folks to take time out of their busy days, their busy lives to go and leave reviews like that. Yeah, I think to be frank, many of them have been after maybe a QBR or this classic conversation with the CS team or the support team. And then we have like that classic closing remark. Hey guys, if you're happy, this is helpful for the company. And this company is building this amazing product that makes you happy. So, you know, time to invest this time. And that's it. So we've never offered any rewards. We've never done, uh, you know, get a G2 and then we are giving away a Mac or something. We've seen other companies actually in the space doing that. Like, hey, good for them. We haven't gone into those tactics, to be honest. So it's more a casual ask. Hey, you happy? This is G2. This is a, you know, many of them actually didn't know it. Many of our customers. So this is G2. You can leave a review here. You know, we're trying our best to deliver value. When it comes to the or persona that you're trying to speak to? Is it CFOs? Is it FP&A managers? Like, who are you really trying to speak to and sell to and market to? I think it's uh, financial planning and analysis managers or heads off. Of course, that function sometimes is had by the BP Finance or CFO or some other people in the company might have that. But most of the time is the FP&A manager. What's the pitch to them? The pitch to them is very clear, right? So, and, and especially in many markets, the sophisticated buyer is there. I think they all realize that either they have or will have that acute pain of, I don't know what to do with my data. I'm spending too much time number crunching and struggling with data back and forth. And the value proposition and the anchor of the value proposition of automating away all those manual tasks and having your reports automatically updated is very key for us. And they sync very immediately with that pain. To be frank, when I see down market, the intensity of that pain is not strong enough is because, you know, that pain is uh, increases over time as companies mature, right? So as companies mature, they will have more volumes of data. They will have more dimensions. That means more complexity in their models, more countries, more products, more stuff to manage. And then at some point at the beginning, you know, with 20, 30% of your time, you're cleaning that data manually and hey, you're a monkey for a 20, 30% of your time, but you know, that's somehow bearable. And I've been that monkey, by the way, right? <laughs> we are building here the problem we had in the past and we are building the product we wish we had in the past and, and solving that problem. So we were in those trenches in, in our previous roles in finance. And now, you know, we said this has to be gone. 
So I think they understand very fast. Yeah, I'm seeing how now with 50, 60, 70% of my time gone to data cleansing and data wrangling, that needs to stop. I'm not able to do my job effectively. That's the starting point. Of course, for bigger teams, more sophisticated, it's not only the data automation that they are after, but how do I plan better? One-click scenarios, right? The classic what-if analysis. Doing that in spreadsheets with operational models, it's actually, it sucks, right? So the CEO or the board will ask a simple question. What if we close this market? What if we launch this or that product? And then that will take four days, full-time finance planning team doing that, long hours, potentially a weekend, because they need to rebuild the model, basically. Right. And doing that in a planning solution that allows you to do that way faster with more real-time insights is a game changer for them. Because the CEO and the board are thinking, you know, what are these guys doing? <laughs> you know, I don't get it. It was a simple question in their mind. So positioning that team and having them empowered to answer those questions with great insights, like they also get this anchor of value proposition. So that's obviously also in the pitch. And then finally, they all want to be a business partner. Business partner is a key word in our industry and in our space. That essentially means that instead of living in your cave, doing your desk work and doing your analysis here and there, you are actually sitting and discussing and challenging and driving your key stakeholders in the company. So the CRO, the CMO, the CPO, like everybody in the company sits with this team, understands the budget, understands the goals, asks those questions and is enabled with amazing insights that allow them to make better decisions. They all dream to be in that position. That's the dream. That's where you want to be. To be frank, very few teams really succeed there because they are very tied up with all that number crunching that I described. It sounds like your messaging is very clear. And I got that feeling when I was on your website earlier, and it sounds like your positioning is very clear. Did you get all of that right from day one, or was it a discovery process to really nail your messaging and and nail the positioning in the way that you have? Yeah, I wish I was right. You know, (laughs) that has been a long process and that has not finished. So we continuously do that. And actually I had a conversation today about it. So we definitely didn't get it right. Look, the first time we got better, to be frank, is when we went through Y Combinator. I think we were working with Michael Civil, the CEO, and with Gustav, another great, amazing partner, and they are brutal. And they challenge you to excruciating pain, which is fantastic because that makes you better. And they were grilling us and they continue to grill us after YC. You know, hey, I don't understand your website. You know, that shit, you know, you should change it. Like, you know, it's bullshit. Like, I don't get it. And that allowed us to improve, but it's a journey that hasn't finished. What was the number one thing you learned from Y Combinator? Was it that idea of messaging needing to be clear or what was it? Look, in Y Combinator, I think the urgency to deliver and stay accountable week in, week out was a very, very powerful concept. You have some other stuff that is more company specific. So they challenged us, you know, on certain product topics or on, you know, the messaging and that's content that was fantastic. And some advice we listened to, some advice we didn't listen to. And to their credit, I regret it afterwards. And I think that's very classic. And I hear many founders saying that. So it's an amazing place. But something that sticks to me is having very clear weekly goals with your co-founder and holding everybody accountable. And that we've cascaded that into the teams. So my management team and everybody else in the company, basically they have like weekly goals that we discuss with our manager and this is what's gonna 
what's going to get done next week by me and I'm the owner and this is the deadline. And, you know, so having that speed of execution really stuck with me. What do you think has been the most important decision you've made so far? Hiding, right? I think getting the right people on board, getting some other people off board. So attracting the right talent, I think that has been and continues to be where I need to spend most of my time. What's the pitch to talent? How do you get them on board? I think it's about the job, the culture, right? I think everybody wants to to thrive in the company. The culture we have is, and probably every founder says that, but you know, I, I fundamentally believe that that's true in, in our company. It's very, very healthy. We live by our values. Those are simple, are four. I think, you know, we are strongly opinionated about those and the culture is very, very vivid. And therefore, despite everything we've done, you know, the Glassdoor reviews, for instance, are you know, continue to be amazing, which I'm very thankful for. And I think it's mostly, you know, going for culture and the growth journey we've been in. Let's talk about the growth journey. Are there any numbers and metrics that you can share? Yeah. So we, you know, at the beginning was more the kind of 10 times year and year growth. Like, you know, these days is more, you know, the three times your growth. And this is what we're targeting. I think obviously the market has not been the best more recently. So at some point I wanted to, you know, and we wanted to be uh, in higher rates, but also we need to acknowledge where we live in and continue pushing. What do you attribute to that growth? What do you think you've gotten right as an organization and as a leader? I think the product market fit is very strong. I think this is something that obviously product market fit is a journey, right? And, and it's a scale of grace and you move from the the white to the black, if you want, or, or to the thicker product market fit. And I think we've made tremendous progress in that journey. It's a complex product. As I've said, I, there is a lot of learnings that you need to do. It's, there is a lot of white you need to cover, but we are seeing that strength coming from a product side. So th this is definitely something that, you know, there are no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts and, you know, it's taken a while. It's taken a lot of investment. It's taken a lot of amazing talent that we have in the product organization. And that means engineering, design, and product management, of course, and a lot of learnings. And today we are feeling we are in this very strong place. From a go-to-market perspective, we've got also that right. So you cannot grow with, without that. We've done amazing hiring this year and, and, and last year, and we continue to see that driving the business. As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised 40 million or over 40 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? I'm not going to be very original here. It's just a, a tool, not a destination. Get it done, move to execution. So fundraising is not you know, something that is particularly exciting to us. Let's imagine that you were starting over again today from scratch. What would be the number one piece of advice you'd give yourself? Yeah, fire fast. And that's a classic, right? So that's become almost a cliche. I've heard many founders that I admire and that I follow. What would you do differently? You know, answering a question very similar to yours. And probably 80% go with fighting fast. And despite we all know that, despite all founders know this cliche, knows this classic, we screw up <laughs> most of the time. And I was not an exception. So of course I've done my mistakes and that is very, very cumbersome, right? And very heavy. That's very heavy for the company and for what you want to accomplish. But also it's a heavy burden that you need to take, right? Because, you know, I made those mistakes in hiring. I made the mistake of failing these people in bringing them to success, right? So obviously that's a burden that you need to carry every day where you fail people and you fail the process and the company and made that mistake. Of course, 
then you have a lot of excuses, right? You are in another fire in the company. You you are committed. You feel responsible. You want to make it work. You know, you love that person anyway, at, even at the personal level, right? So, you know, early stage and stuff. And then those all are, of course, biases. And hey, my co-founder loves this sentence that is whenever there is any doubt, there is no doubt, right? And I think it's very difficult to live by that standard because you will always find excuses. But that's definitely a key learning for me. Let's imagine that you're sitting down and you're having a conversation with an early stage founder who wants to build a product, not in the same category, but they want to sell to the same persona. What would be the number one piece of advice you'd have to give to them? So selling to finance teams is very technical and is sophisticated. And you're facing somebody that doesn't get easily excited as opposed to selling to sales or marketing or some other functions, right? So the number of piece of advice is with that in mind and understanding that's gonna shape your go-to-market and your positioning and your messaging and everything else, make sure you have a extremely robust product market fit before you really want to start playing with go-to-market. So of course, land those first initial partners and you know, design partners, design customers, whatever you want to call that, those early people that is gonna, you know, that are gonna help you build the product. But make sure you have that stickiness and product market fit before getting too excited. Because it's tough territory. Selling to finance teams, you know, it's not that easy. So finding that velocity is gonna be always through value and ROI, clear ROI, instead of hey excitement or it's the new shiny object you know, in our space. Final question for you. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building here? Well, we are becoming, and de facto, we are in the journey of becoming, and we are making that happen, the operational planning system for companies in the mid-market. So arguably, we've started with FP&A, and that's fantastic. But what we are building is bigger. So we gather FP&A teams, but we are also selling and working with revenue operations teams, business operations teams. HR teams as well. So the goal here is bigger than pure you know, financial planning and analysis. Arguably, we are operating these days in this category, but this category, the virtue of this category and this team is that they are in contact with everybody else, with all the rest of the stakeholders in the company. So we are becoming the planning system, the operational system where you know the company is going to be running on. So really the backbone. I think that also has a number of expressions. Right. For instance, we are accumulating all the data that becomes the single source of truth. So now, because we clean the, our customers' data, now they want us to host that data, and then therefore we become a platform play. Of course, AI is you know, something that is going to transform probably many many sectors. We are also building in that space. I think I'm, you know, I, I don't tend to overuse passwords, uh, uh, but but still, I think we can deliver value to customers through AI as well. Amazing. All right, Julio, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if there's any founders that are listening in and they felt inspired or they learned something and they just want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? I think LinkedIn is the platform I use the most. I typically uh, post every day. So for some founder reflections and actually finance interesting stuff, uh, it's not too nerdy. Uh, follow me in LinkedIn. Awesome. Julio, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a lot of fun. Same here, Brett. Thank you so much. Keep in touch. 
This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 